tonight on The Readout. Republicans try to cut Social Security. It's not going to get by the Senate, in my view, but I'll stop them. If they try to cut Medicare, I'll stop them. I got a veto pen. They try to pass the 30% national sales tax, I'll stop them. And if, if they send me a national ban on the right to choose, I will stop them. Within the past hour, President Biden delivering fiery remarks to the DNC amid fresh new signs of economic recovery in America. Also tonight, the trial balloon. The Secretary of State postpones his trip to China after a suspected Chinese spy balloon is spotted over the U.S. So why not just shoot it down? Plus, the fallout from the vote to remove Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee, with one conservative congressman overheard calling it the stupidest vote in the world. Good evening, everyone. I'm Michael Steele in for Joy Reid. And we begin tonight with a track from the Jackson 5. Now, if you are of a certain age, you surely remember the song Never Can Say Goodbye. And if you don't, the lyrics go a little bit like this. I'm not going to sing it, so just calm down. Never can say goodbye. Every time I think I've had enough and start heading for the door, there's a very strange vibration piercing me right through the core. It says, turn around, you fool. You know you love him more and more. Tell me why. Is it so? I don't want to let you go. Okay. Well, that's just about sums up the emotional state of today's Republican Party, as they just can't say goodbye to the big lie. More than two years after Donald Trump lost that 2020 presidential election. So much so that it resulted in the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. And they just can't let it go either, even after their lackluster showing in last year's midterm elections. In fact, the Washington Post reported this week that the GOP is actually planning to ramp up its focus on so-called election integrity activities in states across the country. And perhaps the craziest thing about it all is that, by and large, they know it's all bogus, that there was no election fraud and that no matter how many times Donald Trump posts something at three in the morning, the election was not rigged. It was not stolen. And in fact, they knew that just days after the election. The Associated Press has obtained an audio recording from the head of Trump's campaign in Wisconsin, who admits as much. Say what you want. Our operation turned out Republican or DJT supporters. Democrats just got 20,000 more than us. But that wasn't going to stop them from denying reality. Here's the drill. Comms is going to continue to fan the flame and get the word out about Democrats trying to steal this election. We'll do whatever they need their help with. Okay, so just be in standby in case there's any stunts we need to pull. In case there are any stunts we need to pull. And of course, we saw all those stunts play out real time in the press conferences, rallies and dozens of lawsuits across the country claiming that the election was rigged and stolen. There were more than a half a dozen lawsuits in Wisconsin alone that were either dropped or dismissed. And yet here we are today with Republicans not only still living by the big lie, but actually lionizing some of its election denying candidates. 
Beyond Trump, you have the losing Arizona gubernatorial candidate, Carrie Lake, who today still claims she is the true governor of the state. She has been reading from the Trump playbook, no doubt, from the very beginning of her failed campaign. And she's being welcomed with open arms by the party and is even heading to Iowa later this month. And like Trump, she has raised millions of dollars off the big lie since the election. The Republicans' embrace of the big lie has gone international as well, with their support of the latest Florida tourist, Brazil's former president, Jair, uh, Jair Bolsonaro, who, like Trump, claims his recent election was stolen. And like Trump, his radical supporters assaulted Brazil's Capitol buildings last month. But instead of shunning Bolsonaro, he's headlining an event for the conservative group Turning Point USA Tonight, in Miami, joining me now is Tara Setmayer, Lincoln Project's senior advisor and former GOP communications director, and Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic and author of Thank You for Your Servitude, Donald Trump's Washington and the Price of Submission. Mark, Michael. welcome. Good Thanks. to have you here with me in person so we can throw stuff at the screen together. Let's do it. Given that the foundations of this big lie are well-documented, well-established, well-known, ever-present, mm -hmm. why does it still have such a grip, not just on the GOP, but seemingly pulling the country further and further into its grips. It is sort of astounding to watch this play out. I mean, I was just watching this report, and I'm like, are we really doing this again? Are we really having to listen to this again? I don't see the electoral value of it. I don't see the political value of it. I mean, it's the, the proof is very much in certainly election results. I don't see this becoming a more urgent issue, no matter how many times Carrie Lake goes to Iowa, right? right? I mean, it's just not going to come back. Um, I don't know if it's fear of Donald Trump, which is obviously a very big animating force in the Republican Party. I don't know if it's just assuming or just like this complete petrification of, of you know, just sort of bowing before the, right. the the base, like like they need to hear this. We need to energize them. I mean, it just sort of is a reflexive thing at this point. I get the grift part of it. Yeah. I, I get that part sure. of it because there's a lot of money to be made because they're, you know, as you know, P.T. Barnum said, there's a sucker born every minute. Right. Yeah, sure. But the reality of it is at some point it has a price attached to it, a real cost yeah. to the country. Why? Why is there this obstinate uh, blinding spot to that? I think it's just short-term thinking. And it's also people are blinding themselves to what happened in the last election. I mean, the price to be paid is is there. It's tangible. Election deniers did really badly in November, right? And I think right now it's a path of least resistance. It's what people know what to do. It's where the muscle memory is when you are trying to appeal to the 30% in your base or something that you're going to need. So... I don't know. I just think it's a lack of creative thinking. I think it's just fear. I think it's just cowardice. I think it's the same dynamic that we've seen over the last four or five years here. So, Tara, uh, maybe you can, you're always asking me the question, so I've got the question <laughs> for you, right? When did we kick Reagan to the curb? Why, why are we seeing so many Republicans um, more and more fatuated with the, the ideology of Vladimir Putin and Viktor Orban and, and any of the fascists that they can find in Europe? 
you know, we I always joke uh, and say it often because I'm still telling you, come on, Michael, it's warm over here. Um, but, you know, I didn't leave the Republican Party. The party left me. And once the party started to embrace the Tea Party and then Trumpism and then obviously the malignancy of Trumpism after all of the transgressions of Donald, Donald Trump, we've seen that the party's unrecognizable now. I mean, Ronald Reagan is spinning in his grave and he would never win a primary election in today's Republican Party. Why? Because Ronald Reagan actually stood against fascism and authoritarianism. And today's Republican Party's fascination with these authoritarians and with fascism, it's consistent with what they're doing now. My good friend Ruth Ben-Ghiat wrote the book Strongmen. I encourage everyone to read it. And in there, she talks about how victimhood and um, grievances, that is a toolkit for most authoritarians. It is part of the scam, getting people to believe that, that they are victim, they're being victimized by the system, by whatever. So the idea that Republicans are, are are lionizing losers is just another part of the grievances that authoritarians use because it can deflect from their own incompetence. They can blame their own incompetence. They can blame them being losers and everything else on everybody else but themselves. And the Republican Party is such a personality cult now that they are incapable of course correcting. They have, they've gone down this authoritarian path. There's no turning back. Every opportunity they've had to turn back, they haven't. They've put the pedal to the metal and gone even further and embraced it more. And this is a perfect example who they are lionizing now. It's not Reagan anymore. Right. It's the Orbans. It's the, you know, it's the Bolsonaros. It's Putin. I mean, it is the polar opposite. And that's why at the Lincoln Project, we've started something called the Contract Against Extremism, because people need to understand that these people in the Republican Party are extremists. The extremists now now are the mainstream. And for those people, the 18 or so who are in Biden districts, those Republicans in those swing districts, is this the party they're going to continue to support? Are they going to become extremists as well? Because that's their agenda. Right. People need to understand that. So, so I, I want to follow up with you on another aspect of this uh, story uh, by the AP, the Associated Press, uh, which did some incredible reporting on Trump's uh, Wisconsin campaign meeting. Um, parts of the November 5th meeting also centered on uh, Republican outreach efforts to the state's black community. And at one point, the operatives laugh over needing more black voices for Trump. And the gentleman Iverson, Mr. Iverson, also references their efforts to engage with black voters. Quote, we never talked to black people before. I don't think so, he said, eliciting laughter from the others in the room. So it goes to the question um, that you and I uh, get. How do we engage the, the black community as Republicans and why won't Republic, blacks join the Republican Party? Well, with attitudes like that, you begin to understand the engagement. What, what's your take? Well, Michael, you and I have known each other for over two decades, and one of the biggest frustrations I had, even when I was still with the party, was the level of absolute tokenization of minorities and the frustration of not meeting people where they are and just looking at minority voters as, um, you know, a, a group, a coalition that we needed to target a couple weeks before an election with some ridiculous ads that they think that black people relate to and think that that's going to move folks. That is not the way to do it. And if we're talking about spinning in graves, Jack Kemp, 
is spinning in his grave yeah. because he was yeah. someone who was very inspirational for me, who understood the importance of bringing conservatism to people where they are, particularly in black communities, and showing them how conservatism in principle, the, the original conservatism, not this mess, this toxic stew that we see now, it's not real conservatism, but how that could impact people's lives positively. Right. And you would see numbers move. But this is the joke. This is the, the joke is on anyone of color who actually thought that Trump or the Trump campaign or the current Republican Party actually gives a damn about minorities. No, they don't. And here, when you hear them behind closed doors and they think no one is listening, that's the truth right there. So, Mark, um, the when it, I guess when it comes to Republicans, <laughs> by and large, uh, the portrayal of January 6th is really kind of set in motion for them around um, what the former president is going to do in 2024, how this plays out uh, for him in the potential 2024 presidential uh, candidate uh, like uh, Mike Pompeo. Right. Um, and, and how he's starting to look at this and he's starting to characterize it uh, as he has in an interview with Sky News as a peaceful transition of power. Quote, it's terrible when folks commit these kinds of acts of violence, and I hope they'll be prosecuted appropriately for doing that. But make no mistake about it, that night America also showed its strength. Vice President Pence finished the election. We had a peaceful transfer of power. That is like saying, folks, other than that, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, did I miss something here? Did you not understand what happened that day? I mean, I would say that Secretary Pompeo clearly understands what happened that day. Um, you know, all of us who were there and lived through it, I and mean, we all we all understand it. I mean, the thing about what he said there is that he seems to think that he's going to win points with either side. I mean, that's yeah. kind of like a loser with both sides. It's like he thinks he's going to get points by just sort of throwing out a, a polite aside to, well, I hope everyone's prosecuted. But it was a day of like it was it was a day where you know the vice president did his job. I mean, Mike Pence can't go out in public. I mean, like, let's see how right. he does when he goes to Iowa. I mean, this is not a popular position. And, you know, Donald Trump is not exactly um, talking about running with Mike Pence again. So I don't know. I don't think I mean, I think efforts to split the difference here are, are futile. But it's also it's pathetic when you actually see it try to play out like Pompeo tried. Well, that that is going to be part of the drama of this whole presidential season when you have guys like Pompeo trying to reframe and recast January 6th. Yeah. Tara Setmayer, Mark Leibovich, thank you both very much. Thanks, Mike. Up next on the readout, the vice president, the president and the vice president take a victory lap in Philadelphia as another blockbuster job report bolsters Biden's ambitious economic agenda. The readout continues after this. That's not even all of it. We're not even close. In fact, let me say something. We're just getting started. So let me ask you a simple question. Are you with me? I ran for president. President Biden, in just the last hour at the DNC's winter meeting, seemingly teeing up his message for an expected 2024 re-election bid. The president warning about the MAGA extremism in the Republican Party, while also touting his accomplishments over the past two years, including today's job report that shattered expectations. The economy adding 517,000 jobs. Let me repeat that. 517,000 people found work 
in January, the 25th straight month of solid job growth, while the unemployment rate dropped to 3.4%, the lowest it's been since 1969. It's all part of the reason why many think Biden is still the Democrats' best bet for 2024, even as he's yet to formally announce another run. But if and when he does, many in the party appear to be behind him. One source telling ABC News, I've heard from no one within the DNC or other power brokers within the Democratic Party any reservation about Joe Biden. Joining me now is Eugene Daniels, White House correspondent for Politico and MSNBC political contributor, and Cornell Belcher, Democratic pollster and strategist and MSNBC political analyst. Well, gentlemen, this will be a fun one, right? Because, Eugene, I'll start with you. Does that, that lead in, is that consistent with the reporting that you have uh, been tracking and following, what you're hearing out there about the president at this moment? Yes and no, right? Okay. <laughs> so okay. there, there was a, for a while, there were people who really did not want to see Joe Biden run. But after the midterms and seeing what happened, seeing um, him lead the party over, change expectations, trick all of us into <laughs> in it, who, who thought maybe it wasn't going to go as well, that had changed. Right. There are still people, when you look at polls, that say they don't want Joe Biden to run. And it doesn't have to do that much with policy. It's more about his age. It's more about what does the Democratic Party want to look like moving forward. But then when you talk to folks, they will say exactly what you said. They don't see how anyone else can beat folks in the Democratic or in the Republican Party, especially Donald Trump, because Joe Biden has proven that he's able at this point to go after the MAGA Republicans, as he calls them. And then finally, they have figured out a message on touting their own accomplishments. And that's something they struggled with in the first year and a half. So the so, Cornell, the no part of of uh, Eugene's uh, answer is is really the stumbling block for Democrats. I mean, even if Democrats didn't want to get behind Joe Biden, where the hell are they going? Who are they going to go to? You can't switch out the star quarterback because his pass isn't as quick as it used to be or his aim is a little bit off and not as accurate as it once was because he's still got game left in him. Right. And that's how Biden sort of sees his situation. How do you take or or make the Democrats uh, looking at this? Well, it, it's it's interesting because, look, I, I would argue, and someone who's been front row seat of this for a couple elections, I would argue that, that Joe Biden enters uh, re-election far more better positioned than the last two Democratic uh, presidents. He enters re-election far better positioned than Bill Clinton or Barack Obama, and, and I work for Barack Obama. And, Cornell, why do you say that? The legislation, the, the massive— uh, pieces of legislation that are really impactful to the country uh, and that are wildly popular. And you've seen the the, the, the the polling data on the legislation that he's been able to move. It is wildly popular, a lot more popular than anything that, that, that Bill Clinton or Bush or Barack Obama did. And you do have an economy that is coming out of the shadows of the pandemic in a, in a real strong way. And I think he's going to take a, be able to take a lot of credit for it, but also look, Michael, at what he and the vice president have been doing over the last two weeks and what their schedules have them doing moving forward in the next couple of months. I mean, they, right there, he they weren't only in Philadelphia talking to the DNC. They were in Pennsylvania talking about um, water infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Uh, replacing lead pipes. So a lot of that infrastructure work 
that we that we talked about, you know, a year or so ago over the next year going into the election cycle, that stuff is going to be coming online and real Americans are going to be seeing improvements in their community happen because of this legislative work that 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 he that he has in fact done. And you put that on top of his ability to hold together, you know, fingers crossed, still be able to hold together uh, the international community in a real mm-hmm. strong way up against Putin. Uh, you know, I, I, I love Bill Clinton and, and Barack Obama, but Biden enters a re-election far better position than either one of them did, except for the age thing. Well, look, uh, to your point, um, I think that's a very interesting way to get to what happened today, because you have this really strong jobs report that came out. And and here's what the president had to say about that earlier. Simply, I would argue the Biden economic plan is working. For the past two years, we've heard a chorus of critics write off my economic plan. They said it's just not possible to grow the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. They said we can't bring back American manufacturing. They said we can't make things in America anymore. That somehow adding jobs was a bad thing. Well, or that the only way to slow down inflation was to destroy jobs. Well, today's data makes crystal clear what I've always known in my gut. These critics and cynics are wrong. Eugene? This is his sweet spot. This is what the man has done for his political, throughout his political career. Uh, Do you expect to see that Joe Biden moving once the announcements made, kind of moving the country along with him with these reports and and events that happen and unfold for him and his administration is sort of of, grandpa, all shucks, you know, we're working hard. We're all in this together kind of approach. A little grandpa swag. A little grandpa swag. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think that's right. Because when these reports come out, what you have to do is tell people why it matters to them, right? What it means for them, what it means for them in their homes. I think that is something that this White House Mm -hmm. struggled to do at the beginning, but they have really figured out how to do it and they have got good news to share. But there is also the the specter of inflation. But when you talk to economic experts about this recession that we have been talking about for a long time, it's looking less and less likely. That doesn't mean that something can't change, right? right? right. Because who knows what can happen next month. But Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the administration, as they move forward, they are already planning what trips they're going to take after the State of the Union. Um, She's already headed out. She's going to Georgia next week. Um, He is surely going to hit the road. And so them selling that economic message is going to be really important. And also, like Cornell was saying, that infrastructure bill, that is something, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, right. that was something that is actually going to matter to a lot of people. And them telling folks about the bridge that they, that they take to work, talking about that pothole that's going to get filled because of that. Also, you look at the um, the Inflation Reduction Act, right. you know, that right. kind of stuff. When you talk to most people, and you know this, you've sure. been around a long time, presidents usually get like one good piece of legislation in that first four years. Joe Biden has a lot more. He has a lot more than that. And so that is going to be what this White House, as they move forward, one, talking about the administration, but also what they can do with another four years. Cornell, we, we've got less than a minute left. So just real quick, what about that grandpa swag? I mean, how, how does that, <laughs> and, and I'll attribute that to my friend here, uh, give him full credit for that. Uh, it's all Eugene. But how does that play in this? I mean, the, the markets responded negatively to the jobs report initially. Um, Economists are still kind of wringing their hands. But Joe Biden seems to understand exactly how to narrate this for the American people. What's your what's your take? 
Well, you know, I think I do think he needs grandpa swagging. We've got to turn that into a thing. But to that point, look, I'm going to take I think they got to pull the one from 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 your side. Right. Uh, Michael, this morning in America. Uh, he's got to be cheerleader in chief, and, and to a lot of our young fans, more in America, that was Ronald Reagan, uh, millennials. Uh, but he's he's got to sell and be cheerleader in chief and say, look, things are moving in the right direction. Look, we are getting back on our feet, and America is stronger, and we're going to continue to grow stronger. I think that optimistic, hopeful message, along with the data that sort of backs it up, makes him very formidable. But again. It is that grandpa swag. It is the number one issue that voters hold is, is he, because of his age, is he up for the job? And he's, I think over the next couple of months, he's got to show that he's got the energy and vitality to get the job done. Because this isn't about policy. They're with him on policy. They do question, they do, and and look, it's fair for his age. They do question if he's up for the job. Well, Hashtag Grandpa Swag, right? That's what it's all about in 2024. Eugene Daniels and Cornell Belcher, thank you both very, very much. Really appreciate it. Still ahead, what is a Chinese spy balloon doing drifting lazily over U.S. military installations in the heartland? And what is the government going to do about it? That's next. Earlier this week, if you happen to live in Billings, Montana, you might have looked up to the sky and thought, is that a bird or a plane? No, it's a Chinese spy balloon. Or if you listen to the Chinese, it's a weather balloon that just happened to fly over some military installations. The fact that it's here is pretty astounding given the fact that it flew from China over the Aleutian Islands, through Canada, and into the United States, where it's currently moving eastward and was spotted over Kansas. Almost immediately, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, who is in the Philippines, convened a meeting of senior military and defense leaders, including Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, to assess the threat and consider response options. They advised President Biden against shooting it out of the sky because it could cause civilian injuries or deaths or significant damage. However... The Pentagon and the White House are still considering a number of options and haven't ruled out anything at all at this point. This is not the first time a Chinese spy balloon, by the way, has been observed over the U.S., including during the prior administration. But this one has remained over the country for longer. And this intrusion comes at a particularly tense time between the United States and Canada and China. Excuse me. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken postponed a trip to China that was supposed to start this weekend because of the violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law caused by the spy balloon. Joining me now is Courtney Kuby, the NBC News correspondent covering national security and the Pentagon. Courtney. What's up with the balloon? <laughs> who, do, who doesn't love a story about a spy balloon, right? So, right. I mean, you said it, Michael. It's it's moving eastward across the continental U.S. What's critical to know here for our viewers is that it is still over the U.S. So the, the Pentagon started tracking this thing uh, several days ago. It moved down from Canada into Montana. What's new and different here is that 
This one has been hovering over the U.S. for a matter of days. In the past, there have been other balloons that have come near the U.S. or even gone into U.S. airspace, but they've generally quickly left that airspace. That's why this one has U.S. officials so concerned. And I can tell you, we are literally just learning in the last few seconds, the Pentagon is confirming there's actually a second Chinese surveillance balloon. This one is uh, transiting over Latin America. Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Pat Ryder confirming now on the record there is a second balloon over Latin America. The, the Canadian government was saying earlier today that they may have reports of a second one, but the Pentagon wasn't seeing that until just late this evening. So, so now what we're going to be watching for is where does that one move? Just as we're watching the one that's been transiting across the U.S., it was there were some reports that may have been over Kansas moving eastward. The question is, how long could it stay over the U.S.? Today, Pentagon Press Secretary is saying they assess it could be a few days. And then, of course, that begs the question— what happens when it gets over the over the ocean, Michael? So, so Courtney, help us understand exactly what these surveillance balloons are. I mean, it, it just kind of give us a sense of what they do and, and what is try- China particularly trying to accomplish now having two balloons in this hemisphere? So it, it depends on the balloon. What we're told, according to according to U.S. defense officials, the one that we first heard about over Montana several days ago, that one has a surveillance capability that's somewhat comparable to a satellite. The difference is most of these Chinese spy satellites that exist that are taking pictures of the U.S. pretty much every day, they're in a lower Earth orbit. This one is hovering somewhere around 60,000 feet. So presumably it can it may be able to get a clearer picture than some of the satellites. But what we don't know is just how sophisticated the equipment on board is. What we have learned just late today is that the U.S. is using some counterintelligence measures to obscure the view that it's a that the pictures that the satellite is I'm sorry that this balloon is able to gather especially when they are they are concerned that it could be over a sensitive site so again back to Montana it was only about 200 miles it may have even gotten closer than that to some intercontinental ballistic missile silos mm. that are up in Montana the US has the ability to stop it from being able to see critical infrastructure or sites that they don't want the Chinese to get a good look at So, of course, not letting a good political opportunity go to waste. Republicans have spent the day slamming President Biden and demanding that he shoot it out of the sky. MAGA Republicans in particular have claimed, you know, you know, that's what Trump would do. But in truth, didn't this happen during the Trump administration as well? And and why is it so risky to just shoot it out of the sky? So I have to say, we heard yesterday from defense officials that this had happened in previous, in, in, specifically in the previous administration. I've actually reached out to a number of former administration officials who are saying they're not aware of this happening. It doesn't mean it, it didn't, but I can't find anyone who is confirming it. I will say Secretary of Defense Mark Esper was on TV earlier today, and he flat out denied that he was aware of it happening during his time at the Pentagon. So, but, but that being said, this has happened in the past. It's definitely not unprecedented for the Chinese to put this sort of asset up in the air to try to gather intelligence. And, and by the way, a lot of different countries do this same sort of thing. It's not unusual. The Chinese, the Russians often put aircraft up for surveillance capabilities coming near the U.S., uh, but the Russians and the Chinese both have ships that will often come close to the United, the continental United States. So that's not different. But, but again, The thing that makes this stand out is the fact that it's been over the continental U.S. for so long. That's what's a little bit different here in this circumstance. And again, that's what has U.S. officials so concerned. As far as potentially shooting it down, we continue to hear the concern that because it is so big, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three school buses in size. And it's right. And it's high up. It's 60,000 feet. 
The concern is if they were to blow it up and it were to and, and just to fall an uncontrolled way to the earth, they wouldn't be able to control the debris field. People on the ground could be hurt or even killed. Courtney Kuby, who's got her eye on the balloon. We really appreciate you, Courtney. Thank you. Who won the week is still ahead. But first, after voting to remove Congresswoman Ilhan, Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee, one Republican is overheard calling it the stupidest vote in the world. We'll be right back. Hypocrisy is rank in the Republican Party right now. Yesterday, after voting to remove Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee, Republican Congressman Ken Buck was overheard in an elevator calling it the stupidest vote in the world. According to Roll Call, his fellow Republican Mike Simpson agreed and added that all it does is make Omar a martyr. And being the brave public servants that they are, they urge fellow passengers in the elevator to not let leadership know their thoughts. We won't do that. House Republicans are actively trying to gaslight the country into thinking that what Ilan Omar did was on the same level as the, as the Republicans that Democrats removed from, from committees over a year ago. But it's not the same. Omar was criticized by both parties for playing into anti-Semitic tropes, including when she insinuated that Israel's allies in America were motivated by money. She did apologize for that tweet one day later. Meanwhile, Paul Gosar, who accused Omar of anti-Semitism, actually went to a pro-Hitler conference and later hung out with white nationalist Nick Fuentes with no apology. Even after public outcry, he spoke at the conference one year later. He claimed it was a miscommunication and said he was done dealing with Nick. But then a few months later, tweeted and deleted a documentary about Fuentes. No apology. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, she also went to that conference. Again, no apology. And she defended going. I'm joined now by Republican strategist and MSNBC political analyst Susan Del Percio and Dean Obadala, MSNBC daily columnist and host of Sirius XM's The Dean Obadala Show. Welcome to you both. So, Susan, are Republicans getting away with it? I mean, do you, do you think the American public actually conflates, conflates Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene with Ilan Omar, Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff? Now, I mean, those who pay very close attention, yes, but basically they are going to get away with it, Michael. I don't like saying it, but that's the reality because this news is not as big of news as other things like the docu classified documents and more importantly for Democrats, like the job numbers that came out today. So they get away with it in the sense of the public probably won't really care about it too much. But when the when they want to bring it up and, and do pointed things to the Republicans, the Democrats will have it in their pocket, which is rightfully so, because it is disgraceful that she was removed from this committee. I have very little in common with the Congresswoman uh, politically, but this isn't, it shouldn't be about politics. She is qualified to be there, frankly, as were the other two Congress members that were removed mm -hmm. from committees. But, but to see on the floor, to see these Republicans actually vote to kick her off, it, they have no shame. I mean, and of course we say that all the time, so I don't know. 
Yeah, <laughs> we've kind of run through the sh- the shame uh, factor in all of this. So, you know, yeah. Dean, that 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 sort of, I guess, in one sense, sort of begs the question of you know this idea of a Congresswoman Omar as a martyr. Um, what do you make of that uh, assessment by Congressman Simpson? She's not a martyr. She's stronger now than ever. Her speech yesterday on the floor was great. She was defiant, Michael. She said, "You're not going to silence her." This is a woman who lived in a war-torn refugee camp, came to America in her teens, and has moved up to be a member of the House of Representatives. Look, the GOP went after her for one reason, Michael, the same reason Donald Trump targeted her. They chanted, send her back at a rally of his in July 2019. It's not what she's about or what she says. It's who she is. She's black. She's a Muslim. She's an immigrant. She's a strong woman. She's all the things so much of the GOP base doesn't like rolled into one. That's what this is about. So Congressman Buck can say this is the dumbest thing they've done. Not to Kevin McCarthy. Look at it. It took him 15 ballots to get elected. It took one to demonize and target a black Muslim woman. And they all got on board, all the Republicans. This plays well for the GOP base. And last thing, Michael, there are over 270 Republicans in the House and the Senate. Mm-hmm. Out of the 270 plus, how many are black women? Zero. And there's a reason why. Well, there is that. (laughs) There is that. So then back to you on this one, on that on that point. What does that all of this then have to do with governing? Is this just more performative uh, politics or or what do you see the end game being here? To me, I'm sorry, Michael. I'm sorry, Dean. To me, this is about making the base happy, Michael. This is look, there's a reason why Trump demonized her. There's a reason why. Congressman Omar said a few weeks ago, this is because she's Muslim. That's what she feels because she's seen the trajectory of this GOP that began in 2000, the 2012 election with Newt Gingrich and Herman Cain saying Muslims want to impose Islamic law. To 2016, Trump taking the new heights saying we're going to have a total shutdown on Muslims coming to this country. Islam hates us. It resulted in hate crimes against my community. I'm Muslim. Kevin McCarthy saw all of that. It made the base happy. Kevin McCarthy is not liked by anyone, Democrats or Republicans. He's trying to kiss up to the MAGA base, and this is why he did it. To me, that's all it was, was trying to make the MAGA base like Kevin McCarthy, and they don't like him, and I understand why they don't like him. That's all this was. It was for Kevin McCarthy only, who's a spineless peddler of bigotry and white nationalism. So, Susan, speaking of kiss, kissing up to that MAGA base, earlier this week, Donald Trump made this appalling statement about Russia's invasion, invasion of Ukraine. Frankly, I don't think Putin wanted to do it. I think he was sort of forced in by the statements being made by Biden. Is this uh, Trump telling us exactly where we would where uh, we would be if he had uh, won in 2020? Absolutely. And it looks like he's still paying that bill, whatever it is that Putin has over him or the money he gave him. He is Donald Trump is still paying it off. That's no doubt about it, because to get on the air now ever, after everything <laughs> to defend Putin in this day and age I, it, it's it's absurd and actually the only good thing is that he's so ridiculous is that it will be used against him should he you know really push for a hard run so i guess at this point in in the game it, you know after a year when he's called Putin savvy and for his invasion and all of the stuff that he's been doing where do we go into the, how do we move into this election cycle, Dean, coming up? Um, and what what kinds of excuses, what more excuses can be made for this president? 
For Donald Trump, look again. Yeah, for, look for at Donald the GOP Trump. base. Right. Look at the GOP base. What are they like? I've seen a, a polls that show the GOP base views Putin more favorably than most Democratic leaders. The, the base is now has an affinity to authoritarian leaders like Putin. And Trump manifested that. Maybe he moved that along more quickly. He likes Putin. He complimented 15 autocrats while he was president from China to North Korea to Turkey and Egypt. The list goes on and on. And the GOP base likes it. They like that strongman. And Donald Trump attempted a coup and incited a terrorist attack, and they're still with him. All right. Susan and Dean are sticking around to play Who Won the Week? But first, a quick heads up on the latest installment of the MSNBC documentary series, The Turning Point, airing this weekend, Guerrilla Habeas, is an intimate look at immigrants in the U.S. threatened by deportation and the dedicated lawyers trying to keep those families together. Guerrilla Habeas airs Sunday at 10 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC and is is streaming on Peacock now. We'll be right back. We made it to the end of another week, which means it's time to play. Who won the week? Back with me are Susan Del Percio and Dean Obadala. All right, Susan, who won the week? I'm going with Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, who I have nothing to do agree with politically, but boy, he reconvened uh, or convened a grand jury to investigate the Stormy Daniels hush money case against Donald Trump. And that really seems to have irked Donald Trump because he was tweeting about it or truth socialing about it. So I think it was probably the right move. And he waited till the time was right. So Alvin Bragg. All right, Dean, who's your your winner this week? I got the winner. It's a Chinese spy balloon. Everybody's talking about it. It's getting getting more press than Donald Trump. In fact, Donald Trump might launch his own spy balloon, which, of course, will be made in China, just like his suits and his ties. So to me, spy balloon, we all have opinions on it. Everyone wants to shoot it down or save it. Spy balloon winner. I love that. It's five balloons. So my winner is the president of the United States with a with an economy that is not just steady, but expanding jobs being created, heading into uh, his State of the Union next week. The president is showing the kind of strength that I think the country at the end of the day really want to see a, a leader possess. So there it is. Susan Del Percio and Dean Obadala, thank you guys so much. Uh, and that's tonight's readout. Uh, Joy Reid returns on Monday.